Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. My name is Jonathan Snowbell, and you are listening to the sixth and final shiur on Parshat Shlach. We have been discussing the halachic sections and one narrative of chapter 15 that interrupt the narrative flow of Sefer Bemidbar, specifically the narrative flow between Shlach and Korach, the sin of the spies and the story of Korach's uprising. Not only do they interrupt, but most seem to belong to Sefer Vayikra and the world, world of sacrifices. We will continue our attempt to analyze each section independently and understand it within the context of our parasha. In this last section, we will conclude our analysis of chapter 15 with the f- final two parashiyot, the narrative of the Mekoshesh Eitzim, and the well-known well section of Tzitzit. Just one brief comment on the previous section. The claim was made in our previous session that an individual can be cut off, but the nation cannot be cut off. That is why the Torah entertains the case of purposeful sinning with regard to the individual and not with regard to the entire congregation. This was meant as a comfort to the nation in the aftermath of the sin of the spies. Individuals will suffer the consequences. The nation, however, continues to live on. The Sforno makes an opposite claim. The description of the severity of the individual sin is to be understood as an explanation why Bnei Israel's tshuva in the aftermath of the sin of the spies was not accepted. And now we begin with verse 32. Now while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Shabbat day. The geography here is completely vague. They're in the desert. There is certainly no date. Which desert are they in? When did this happen? Is it chronologically after Chedam Eraglim, as it appears in its sequence? On the very first verse, Rashi makes the following comment based on the Sifri. Bignutan shal Yisrael katuv. The Torah is saying something against the nation of Israel. They only kept one Shabbat. And on the second Shabbat already, this one came and desecrated the Shabbat. Rashi's comment gives us a lead on chronology, though it makes a questionable comment as well. According to Rashi, this incident took place the second Shabbat after starting to receive the man. When Bnei Israel received the man on the 15th day of the second month, in the first year of, of the Exodus, essentially a month after the Exodus, it was then that were, they were commanded about Shabbat in relation to the laws of collecting the man and storing the man. According to the statement, the first Shabbat they kept properly, and the second Shabbat they did not, thanks to the Mekoshesh. In other words, the Mekoshesh Eitzim took place in the second month of the first year. Parenthetically, the first comment regarding Bnei Israel keeping Shabbat appears to, as well to be, to, appears to be incorrect. Already on that first Shabbat, the Torah in Shemot chapter 16 comments that they were those who went out on Shabbat to look for the man, evoking God's anger that Bnei Israel refused to keep his commandments. More substantively, Rashi's comment answers a question and it creates a few new ones. We asked chronology, we asked for context. The chronology is the second month of the first year. The context is keeping Shabbat. Well, 
If that is the case, for both reasons, this section belongs in Shemot 16, both chronologically and contextually, as Shemot 16 deals extensively with Shabbat. Why is it here in Bemidbar that takes place in the second year between the sin of the spies and the story of Korach? The Ibn Ezra goes in Rashi's direction, but with an explanation. He claims that it took place in the wilderness of Sinai, which means it did not take place chronologically here. B'nai Israel were in the wilderness of Paran when the spies were sent. He explains that this is a practical application of the principle in the previous section. A person who purposely and brazenly defies God's, God's commandment. Well, here's an example of someone who did this, even though it was previous to this incident, and he was put to death, as we will read. The Rambans offers the simpler opinion. In contrast to Rashini Ibn Ezra, that chronologically the Mekoshesh takes place after the sin of the spies. The delay in the desert, in effect, caused the sin to happen. Or as my mother always says, the devil has work for idle hands to do. Without a mission or direction, some members of the nation are getting caught up in sin. What does Mekoshesh mean? The Gemara in Masachat Shabbat, Daf Tzarivava Mudbet, brings three opinions. Ma'avir Arba Amot Birshut Harabim, he moved the trees four cubits in a public domain, which is a melacha on Shabbat. Tolesh, he uprooted the trees from the ground. Or Me'amer, he was collecting trees as we translated in the English. The truth is that it is possible that he did all three. He uprooted trees, collected them, and then transferred them in a public domain for whatever use was necessary. In Sefer Shemot, when Pharaoh decrees that the Israelite slaves will no longer get hay for making bricks, it says that the nation scattered lekoshesh kash lateven. So once again, this word lekoshesh comes up here in the, with regard to the hay. Rashi there comments that lekoshesh means to collect, like the third opinion in Masachat Shabbat. However, there too, Lekoshesh might refer to a broader process of getting the hay to where it needed to be, which included uprooting the hay, collecting the hay, and transferring the hay. We return now to verse 33. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moshe and Aaron and to, the, and to all the congregation, and they put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Both Rashi and Ibn Ezra comment that Hamotzimoto implies that those who witnessed the event warned the sinner in the formal halacha category called Hatra'a that is necessary in addition to testimony about the sin in order to execute any punishment. In order to execute any punishment, we need to know that there was warning given to the sinner. He was placed under watch because it was unclear what was to be done to him. Let us note a comparison in language between a very similar incident from the end of Sefer Vaikra. In contrast to Bemidbar, Vaikra is almost entirely not narratives. One exception is the dedication of the Mishkan and the story of the death of Nadav and Avihu. The other exception is the case of he who blasphemed God's name in Vaikra chapter 24. 
Similar to our incident, the case of the blasphemer is completely out of the blue. There is no narrative context to connect it to. There too, the commentaries make suggestions as to the impetus for the blaspheming, the location, its place in the chronology of Chumash. In fact, the Chizkuni in Bemidbar makes the claim that according to Rashi, it would appear that the desecration of Shabbat described in Bemidbar took place in the first year, shortly after the Exodus, as we already mentioned, while the background for the sin of the blasphemer described earlier in Chumash in Vayikra was setting up of the camp in the second year according to the patrilineal descent of the tribes, thus excluding the blasphemer whose mother was an Israelite but whose father was Egyptian. Additionally, there is a sin, witnesses, being brought to Moshe, being placed under watch. All of those are common to both stories. But here there, but here, there is a slight deviation. In Vayikra it says, they brought him to the sinner to Moshe, lifrosh lahem al pi Hashem. And in Bemidbar it says, ki lo forash ma aselo. In both, it is not obvious what to do, and God's intervention is necessary to determine what to do. But whereas with regard to the desecration of Shabbat, the Torah and Shemot, in more than one location, indicates a death penalty, the missing knowledge then is which death penalty. Thus, what specifically should be done to him with regard to which, what should specifically should be done to him? With regard to the blasphemer, lifrosh lahem al pi Hashem, God had to tell them the punishment in its entirety. Only in that location, in Sefer Vayikra, does the Torah explicitly state the punishment for one who blasphemes. An additional deviation between the two stories is who the sinner was brought to. In Vayikra, the blasphemer is brought to Moshe. In our story, the Mekoshesh is brought to Moshe, Aharon, and the entire congregation, the Eidah. Based on what we have learned in our parasha, the Eidah's prominence in the story of the sin of the spies, referring to B'nai Israel mostly, and as well to the ten undermining spies, a total of 14 times is the word Eidah, or Adat, mentioned in these two chapters preceding this story of the Mekoshesh, including the sacrifice of the Eidah in the previous section, and an additional three times in this story, it is hard not to think that the Torah is connecting with the story here of the desecration of Shabbat to the sin of the spies and the broader context. We already quoted the Ramban who placed this story in chronological order and explained it as a result of the punishment. Another possibility is an execution of the principle that was taught in the previous section. The individual has the potential to be wiped out and cut off completely. And that is what happened to the Mekoshesh Eitzim. Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yehuda ben Betera in the same Gemara and Masachat Shabbat explained that Tzlofchad, whose daughters describe their father as having died in the, in the wilderness because of his sin, to the Mekoshesh, according to Rabbi Akiva, or to the Ma'apilim, according to Rabbi Yehuda ben Betera. There are different theories of the Mekoshesh purposely sinning to teach the nation Hilchot Shabbat or to teach them that the laws still apply even if they are not entering Eretz Yisrael. Personally, I'm, 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 I'm uncomfortable with these theories that glorify a sinner that the Torah does not seem to glorify.
Let's read the concluding verses. Then Hashem said to Moshe, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, just as Hashem had commanded Moshe. And with this we conclude our evaluation of the story of the Mikoshesh, its connection to the broader context of the parasha, and move on to the final section in our parasha, Tzitzi. Once again we face a classic halachic parasha. We will learn it and hope to find a connection to our broader context. Verse 37. Then Hashem also spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels or fringes on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. The word tzitzit, the Rashbam points out the use of the word in Yechazkel, Vayikacheni b'tzitzit roshi, I was grabbed by the fringes of my hair. So too the tzitzit are fringes on the corners of the clothing. In Sefer Devarim, a brief completing verse about tzitzit will say, Gedilim ta'aselach al arba kanfot kesutecha asher techaseba, pinpointing that the corners of the clothing mentioned here, refer to a four-cornered garment. Lidorotam, for your generations. Let us note that this is the fourth use of this, use of this word in the post-sin of spies sections. Lidorotechem, in verse 14, in the context of the Nesachim. Lidorotechem, again in verse 21, in the context of Hafrashat Chala. Lidorotechem, in verse 23 in the context of the congregation's sacrifice, and now Lidorotam in verse 38 in the context of Tzitzit. All seem to be subtly whispering, telling us that despite the tragedy of the sin of the spies and the Ma'apilim, the nation will continue to survive for generations onward. Petil Techelet. What is a petil? Typically we assume it to be a string or a cord. However, in other contexts, the root pei taf lamed means to go around something, lehit patel. Thus, the Torah is telling us not to add a string of tchelet, but to have the tchelet go around the tzitzit. This is how some commentaries understand the Rambam's opinion on tying tchelet. It is not meant as one of the strings of the tzitzit. It is meant as the string that goes around the tzitzit, petil, Tchelet. When we recall Tchelet in the Torah, we go back to Tchelet's role in the Mishkan, in the weavings of different materials, of the, of the curtain, of the tent around the Mishkan itself, and of course in the garments of the Kohen Gadol. However, if we jog our memory back to the more recent chapters in the Torah, we only need to go back to chapter 4 in Bimidbar, and recall the bags or sacks of Tchelet in which the vessels of the Mishkan were transferred by the sons of Kehat. Is it not more likely that if there is an intertextuality to discuss with regard to Tchelet, 
it is taking us back to a local reference in Bimidbar rather than back to Sefer Shemot. Verse 39. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Hashem so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. What we have read here is the purpose of the mitzvah of tzitzit. By seeing it, we remember all of God's mitzvot, asetov, doing something good, and we also do not go after our eyes and heart that attempt to lead us astray. Surmerah, stay away from bad things. What does uritem oto refer to? Sforno explicitly, explicitly says that this refers to the tzitzit in its entirety. This seems to be Rashi's position as well. Rashi says that what causes us to remember all of God's commandments are the tzitzit, which are in 600 in gematria, 90 plus 10, plus 90 plus 10 plus 400, with eight strings of the tzitzit, the four doubled strings, and five knots in total. Eight plus five is 13, plus 600 equals 613, the 613 mitzvot, tariag mitzvot. Rashi thus is referring to the entire tzitzit, causing one to remember all of the 613 mitzvot. The Ramban challenges Rashi, stating that the tzitzit is spelt in the Torah without a second yud, which is 590, not 600. Additionally, according to Beit Hillel, there are three, not four strings, meaning there are six strings, not eight strings. And only two knots are necessary from the Torah obligation, not five. Therefore, the Ramban claims that Uri Temoto refers specifically to the Tchelet, as many commentaries quote the Sifri, Tchelet domelayam, viam domela rakia, verakia, lekisea kavod. The Tchelet is similar to the sea, the sea is similar to the sky, and the sky is similar to God's throne of glory. By seeing the Tchelet, by association we are reminded of God. Being reminded of God, one remembers to keep all of his commandments. The Ibn Ezra makes two important comments. The different customs exist as to whether tzitzit are seen throughout the day or tucked in one's pants. He says that the mitzvah is for them to be seen, uritemoto. Additionally, although the Rambam, Maimonides, at the end of the laws of tzitzit, comments that it is more crucial to wear tzitzit during tefillah, this explains the Ibn Ezra because we mentioned them during Kriyat Shema, and we kiss the tzitzit, However, the Ibn Ezra claims the opposite is in fact true. If the tzitzit are meant to remind us of God's mitzvot and keep us from going astray, then we need them more so the rest of the day besides tefillah when we face the challenges of the outside world. Who sins during tefillah? Why do we need reminders during tefillah? We are already in the context of worshipping God. This verse truly connects us with the sin of the spies in four clear ways. This word is familiar to us from our parasha. 
the spies' mission was Vyaturu at Eretz Canaan, and they were called the Tarim. And we translated this world as those who sought out, and that word repeats itself throughout the story of the spies. Don't go after your hearts. And the spies in Devarim are described as Our brothers melted our hearts. And the spies reported We were in their eyes like grasshoppers and so too were we in their eyes? So the eyes play a role here as well. God punishes Bnei Israel. Your betrayal to God. Here the Torah is making a clear statement regarding the connection of the mitzvah of tzitzit and the sin of the spies. The sin of the spies had people making human conclusions by taking God out of the picture. Their eyes told them that they were big and we are small. Their hearts melted and they were fearful of the great Canaanite nations. They allowed their hearts and eyes to lead them astray, ultimately being unfaithful to God. Znut. Kalev and Yoshua tried to put God into the equation. Im banu Hashem, if God wants us, el and He will bring us to this land. Ach Hashem, al against God, do not rebel. You must not look at reality through human eyes and hearts. You must put God into the equation. With God in the equation, everything looks different. We can capture Eretz Yisrael with God. Taking God out of the equation is znut. It is betrayal of God. Tzitzit tell us not to look at the tempting world of sin with human eyes and hearts. Put on tzitzit. Be reminded of God. See reality through a divine prism and not merely a human one. And this brings us back to the tchelet. The vessels of the Mishkan were carried in bags or sacks of Tchelet. The bag or sack is not significant unto itself. What is significant is the vessel inside. When Bnei Israel saw these Tchelet bags or sacks, they were reminded that there was more than meets the eye. They were not simply looking at sacks of Tchelet. There was something greater hiding in the sack, a vessel of the Mishkan. Thus, the Tchelet is hiding something far greater, far more significant. So too, the Tchelet of the Tzitzit says there is more than meets the eye. There is the simple reality that we perceive with our human faculties, but then we see the Tchelet on our Tzitzit, reminding us that the reality is not as simple as we think. God is there too. The reality that we are weak and they are strong is viewing reality without Tchelet, without the hidden element, God. Look at reality with the hidden, with God. Then on a national level, we will have the ability to feed the Canaanites. And on a personal level, we have the ability to overcome our natural tendencies to sin, for God is with us.
I am Hashem, your God, who brought you out of out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Hashem, your God. And within this context, this is the ultimate lesson of the exodus from Egypt. We did not get out by accident. God took us out. God turned the world upside down against any human convention or thought processes. So with this connection of Parshat Tzitzit to the sin of the spies as a reaction to the core problem of the sin of the spies, not recognizing, not recognizing God's impact on reality, we understand why Parshat Tzitzit is mentioned here in this context. And with this, we conclude chapter 15 and its challenge how each of these sections are related to the broader context of the sin of the spies. In next week's parasha, Parashat Korach, we will see how the Midrash also takes the parasha of Tzitzit and connects it to the claim of Korach and his assembly. And with this, we have concluded Parashat Shlach.